Evan, thank you for these people and for this strange yet sacred vision. We need you to speak to us, to rid us of the emotional and spiritual inertia, apathy, and despair that so often diminishes our already strained and detached experience of you. Even when it's through ancient images in literature that isn't easy for us to understand, change our lives so that they would imitate what we've read about here, so that the sound of our voices would rise up to you, so that our lips would sing your praises, and so that hallelujah would become the melody of our lives because salvation and power and glory belong to you and to you alone. Weaken the allure of false gods as we immerse ourselves in your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, hello once again, everyone, and happy Sunday. I'm Ty, the campus pastor for RUF at USC. Um, It's great to be back here with all of you on this fourth Sunday of Advent when we're trying to recreate that disruptive sense of anticipation we should feel when Jesus returns. Not because we're resigned, um, anxious, or scared, but because we eagerly await the fullness of our salvation. When Jesus finally welcomes us home, sits next to us at his banquet table, and says, feast. Like, this is for you. Eat to your satisfaction. Enjoy yourself, because this party will last forever. So as delicious as that food will be on that day, there's actually something even sweeter about this feast, and it's the fact that we're invited to it. So you don't have to walk in with a more important guest, you know, sneak in the back or resort to you know, trash-talking all other people who got in while you park cars and wait for tips in the back. Like, we're not valet. Like, we are the VIP invites. And it's not a mistake. Like, your name is there, and we are the guests of honor at this, ta- at this table. That's what we're anticipating in this fourth Sunday of Advent. So as we begin, let's, let's deepen that anticipation with a story. So um, I know a guy uh, who watched a popular Netflix series uh, twice, actually, even though it was hard to watch at times because it was about the brutal rise and never-ending spiral of violence and corruption that happened in Mexico and Colombia when their drug cartels held their near-omnipotent power over those countries. So the series, of course, is called Narcos. So in Narcos, Colombia, the viewer, I'm told, is introduced not only to the fear, but to the salvation of Pablo Escobar in a scene that ends with three haunting words. Plata o plomo. Money or lead. So if you choose plata, you get salvation from this drug lord. And everybody knows that it's temporary, conditional, extremely volatile salvation because you can keep your life only as long as you protect cartel interests with your own life. 
But when you stop making that trade, you get plomo, right? Violence and death because he's a cruel drug lord who only cares about expanding and preserving his kingdom. And if you can't do that for him, like you're less than worthless. So here's the thing. Um, Pablo Escobar isn't the only one to offer plata o plomo as salvation. Like you and I, we're forced into a similar trade in this kingdom of self-preservation we call the West. We trust in, hide the secrets of, and do the dirty work for the twin gods of achievement and accumulation all the time. Right? Those are the idols that we fight for and surrender our lives to because we get affirmation and validation from what we would do, what we do, what we possess, and what we can control. But this vision in Revelation 19 shouts for joy at the demise of money and lead. You know, it cheers with laughter and delight when God collapses them. Because when fake gods fall, the salvation of Jesus arises, proving his trustworthiness as the only God who delivers on his promise of true and everlasting life. So today, I want you to resist the dangerous salvation of money and lead, to embrace the salvation of invitation that's found in Jesus. So let's center our lives around this salvation of invitation by exploring this vision under two key themes that arise in it. Just praise and unchanging belonging. So let's start with just praise. Do we have any soccer fans here? No? Just me? Okay, all right, good. Uh, anybody else want to suddenly move to Florida after Messi got traded to Inter-Miami this summer? Like, just me? Okay, whatever, that's fine. So I wasn't into, so into soccer until the last World Cup. Um, I was teaching Latin at the time, and all my students could talk about was the World Cup. And they got so into it, they actually convinced me that, Mr. G, it would be far more pedagogically and educationally effective if we live-streamed the U.S.-Iran game in the middle of class. So, being the teacher that I was, I was like, heck yeah, let's do it. So we, we did. We watched the game. I watched one game, and I was hooked. And if you watched it too, like you remember the final match between Argentina and France, where Argentina uh, dominated the first 80 minutes, right? They were up 2-0 until Bappe scored twice within two minutes to level. He was epic, right? And then he went into 17 minutes of extra time. Messi and Bappe each scored, so the game is tied 3-3 at the end of the match which means the winner of the World Cup has to be decided through the thing that produces the highest levels of adrenaline, anxiety, and anticipation for players and fans on both sides. Penalty kicks. Right, you know how PKs go. Everyone stands arm-linked around each other, swaying to the side to release the suspense, holding your breath as each shooter approaches the ball. And of course, when it's Messi's turn, he's given the biggest shot in the history of soccer, right? There's tens of thousands of eyes on him in the stadium, millions around the world, yet there's silence. There's silence in the stadium. Every eye on him, the goalie, are closed in distressed anticipation. 
And of course, because he's messy, he scores a winning penalty in that shootout, right? So if you're Team France, bitter disappointment. But if you're Team Argentina, ecstatic cheers and raucous joy. So that rapturous eruption of praise that the Argentinian fans felt that day is just a dim glimmer of the joy that's experienced when Babylon falls on the last day in Revelation 19. You hear it seven times in the vision. Hallelujah, 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 praise, hallelujah, rejoice and be glad because the game of history has ended and God has done two victorious things to come out on top. He condemned the great prostitute and avenged the blood of the saints on her. That's what it says in verse two. So to truly appreciate what's going on here, we have to understand what this great prostitute represents. So if you go back to Revelation 18, you'd read about this stunning woman who's dressed like a queen, but she's drunk with the blood of Christian martyrs and of all innocent people on the earth. She's riding a dragon beast, and her name is Babylon the prostitute. So this woman blends together images throughout Old Testament prophetic literature, especially Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, that are used to depict uh, the downfall of Israel's rebellious neighbors, Babylon, Tyre, and Edom. So look, this woman is a symbol of the tragic human condition when individuals, tribes, cities, even nations, they build a name for themselves, consolidate their resources and their power, and exalt their economic and military security into a false god. Does that sound familiar? And let me read a few verses from Revelation 18 so you get a better sense of this. Woe. Woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Woe to you, great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through your wealth. In one hour, she has been brought to ruin. Your merchants were the world's important people. By your magic spell, all the world was led astray. In her was found the blood of the prophets and of God's holy people. So a strong economy, fear-inducing military might, and persecution of Christians. That's what this woman represents in Revelation 18. And heaven rejoices in Revelation 19 at her downfall. The question for us, though, is this. Like, is that what you're cheering for? Like, would you actually join in the praise of justice that we see here? Like, will you celebrate when team economism and team militarism lose? So look, don't answer that question like too quickly. I want you to think about what could happen to you if this woman actually falls. You might lose your hard-earned investments, assets, retirement, and generational wealth. You might lose the refined pleasures of good taste that exist in LA. You know, classy food and cocktails, high fashion, electric cars, beautiful homes and luxury gyms. You might lose the security of weapons of mass destruction being on your side and not on your enemies. 
Like, would you dare hope or pray for those things? Like, I know it's hard for me to want that. But we have to see this woman like who, for who she really is because she's not some deadly thing out there, some corrupt system or status quo to protest, even though I wish it was that simple. Like, she's us. She's us. Our greed, our envy, our wrath that we let loose all into the, into the world together. You know, she's personal and social sin. But God will condemn her one day, like it says in verse two. God, the just and incorruptible judge, will swing his gavel and say, enough. Like your magic spell will no longer deceive my people. You cannot seduce them anymore. Like you're finished. And that's when finally, the words of Martin Luther King Jr. will be true. Though the arc of the moral universe is long, it eventually bends towards justice because God cheers for justice. God rejoices in justice. God enacts justice and avenges the blood of innocent people against this woman who only stands for money and lead. So do you praise justice? That's what this great this, the great prostitute's fall is inviting us to do. So that's this first thing, just praise. But what about this unchanging belonging? You know, uh, one of the things I've done recently to give myself permission, not just to have a life, but a fun life outside of ministry, is start a gym membership. And I did that because I needed somewhere. I didn't need to be the rev anymore, you know? I could just be Thai. And on my first day, the first thing I noticed about this luxury gym I just paid way too much money for because I was seduced by the eucalyptus scent on the towels, fancy locker rooms, upscale lifting floor that I'll probably never use. The first thing I noticed is that I was severely underdressed, which is weird because every other gym I went to, like normal, gym, normal gyms, you're supposed to underdress but not here. At this gym, people dress up, not down. So here's the fit from, from bottom to top. This is what everybody else was wearing. White Nike or cloud trainers, black Lululemon leggings or joggers, black Gymshark hoodies or those long sleeve neoprene shirts that show every muscle or the short sleeve ones that show the sexy tattooed covered biceps that are bigger than my calves. And to top it off, white AirPods. Like, that's the fit. That's not what I was wearing. <laughs> like, I didn't get the memo that morning, so I was wearing teal blue running shoes, not trainers, black basketball shorts that were too long compared to everybody else's. At least I got the color right. Dark blue Under Armour shirt, not skin tight because my muscles don't flex like that, and no Air AirPods because I have an Android and I am proud of that. So what do you think I did after my first day at this gym? I went shopping, right? I went shopping, of course, because I realized I didn't fit in at Equinox until I bought the right clothes. So why am I telling you about all my gym style insecurities? Because there's actually something really deeply theological about fashion. Walk onto the campus at USC and you will see that. And we also see that in Revelation 19. The great prostitute falls 
heaven rejoices, a wedding party begins, and the bride of that wedding has made herself ready for the party. How? Fine linen, it's clothes, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. So this is the bride, right? This is her night, and she's ready for her part, ready to stand before her groom, ready to recite and to receive vows of exclusive and unending loyalty and love. And the reason she can stand with her groom to confess those things, and the reason she can stand before others and legitimately do that, the reason everybody at the party recognizes who she is and what she's about to do is because she's wearing the right clothes fine linen, bright and clean. She's gorgeous, right? And ready because these clothes were, keyword, given to her. So she didn't rush to Amazon style like I did. She didn't have to buy her way into acceptance. She didn't have to convince everyone that she was beautiful enough to fit in. She was given clothes. She belongs to her groom without impressing him. She belongs to the groom because the groom says, I'm ready for you. Here, wear this because your clothes should glow with the pureness of my love for you. I want everyone to see you in the dress. I want everyone to see you dressed in the radiance of my love for you. Do you get what's going on here? We are that bride, right? Jesus is our groom. And we are clothed in what best symbolizes his love for us, righteousness. Righteousness, like the end of verse 18 says. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts, for the righteous deeds of God's holy people. So righteousness can be a confusing thing. So let me try to make it as simple as possible for us. So internal righteousness refers to integrity, right? The honest and upright character within that allows for genuine relationships to happen. And then external righteousness refers to advocacy, right? It's about seeking justice for others so less harm happens and more good gets done. And that's what Jesus, Jesus closes us with, his own internal integrity and external advocacy that lead to more right relationships in our world. Now, some people especially college students who care deeply about change, transformation, and social justice, jump straight into the good works of mercy, solidarity, and advocacy without resting in the righteousness of Jesus first. So in other words, they skip over the fact that um, that these beautiful clothes are given to the bride. And then others focus solely on character formation, through faith in Jesus, so much so that they lose sight of the other-centered movement of righteousness that goes to you, but then through you, so that what's most noticeable about God's people is their righteous acts for the sake of others. So the truth is that we need both forms of righteousness, internal and external, because you'll fake it if you have just one or the other. You can try to fit in with Jesus's people by using the language of faith, persuading others by your words that deep transformation has occurred on the inside. 
Or you could try to fit in with the deeds of faith, convincing others with your life that Jesus has changed you. But unless you have both the language and the deeds of faith, you can still be a fraud, which we're all afraid of, because being accused of of fraud is just as humiliating and delegitimizing as actually being one in our society that values the ethics of authenticity so much. So what do you do? Like, what do you do if you can't stop hiding yourself like Adam and Eve in Louis Louis Vuitton fig leaves? Like, if you can't stop going to Equinox and thinking, I just don't fit in, so I need to buy all the right clothes in a desperate attempt to not be naked, exposed, and ugly in front of others. Like, what do you do? What do you do? Well, what did God do for Adam and Eve? into the heavenly choir in Revelation 19. He clothed them. They're wearing the gorgeous outfit God made them because the beauty of righteousness comes from God. So when you wear the royal clothes of King Jesus, you unchangeably belong to him. That's how you get lasting acceptance with Jesus. You wear his outfit. You wear his outfit. So I want to close with a final reflection on this bi-directional path of salvation that I mentioned at the start, right? There's the narcos path of self-preservation going one way, and there's the Jesus path of salvation by invitation going in a different way. We talked about that first path of salvation a lot, but what exactly is this salvation by invitation? Let me see if I can illustrate this with one final story. You know, I remember when I was on the edge of graduating from seminary, and I wanted to end the grad school grind and start a new chapter in life with a trip. So Karen and I booked a guided backpacking tour through Costa Rica, and we spent like 10 days going from its largest city, San Jose, to its adventure capital, La Fortuna, to the lush mountains of Monteverde and the beautiful coast in Capos. And a memory actually just popped up in my photos Uh, the other day of the first breakfast that Karen and I had in San Jose. It's called gallo pinto, which is a rice and bean bowl with eggs, avocado, and potato. It came with sweet platanos on the side, local fruits, freshly squeezed juice, and of course, café con leche. I remember eating this meal, turning to Karen and saying, I could live here. (laughs) Like, let's do it. Let's move. I was ready to become a tico. That's what you call the guys in Costa Rica, or ticas if you're a woman. And day one, I was ready to move and become a tico because the food was enough to make me stay. So that pleasure, that sense of fullness and delight I got from one Costa Rican breakfast was a literal taste of the new creation feast. I am convinced of it that I ain't leaving, this food is made by Jesus, let's stay here and eat forever attitude. That's what you should hear in Revelation 19 when John says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Do you ever wonder why the most common thing posted on Instagram is food? It's because we're all longing for Revelation 19 to happen. So next time you try a new fancy restaurant, Let the smell of warm, freshly prepared food drift into your nose. Notice 
the careful styling of ingredients that turns this arrangement of food into a beautiful meal. Relish the delectable and exquisite tastes that arise from perfect mixtures that are both nourishing and satisfying. And take a long, slow, savory sip of wine and then thank God for that because you were made to enjoy that forever. That's what the salvation of invitation is. Jesus invites us to the places of honor at his table so that we would have a seat at the greatest, longest, most pleasurable feast imaginable. By the way, sharing a meal with someone is like the easiest and best evangelistic opportunity imaginable. Like all you have to do is lean over to your friend who doesn't follow Jesus and say, hey, wanna go to a feast that lasts forever? Like that's food evangelism. That's what we do at RUF. And that's what Revelation 19.19 is. Jesus's salvation of invitation around a never-ending feast. Look, a drug lord wouldn't offer you that. He would threaten your life and then offer you money or lead as the only way out, but not the true Lord. Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus offers you an extravagant welcome. He wants you to eat at his table and he wants you to be full and to stay because history ends not with a bang or with a sigh, but with the laughter of friends feasting around the table of a king who greets them and says, my friends, you look good. I love your outfits. You couldn't be more beautiful. This night of marriage-like love and joy, it's for you. Don't make any other plans because I want this party to last forever, amen? Would you pray with me as we close? Father, thank you for your beautiful love for us in Jesus, who doesn't make us run or hide in shame or fear, but runs after us in compassion and clothes us in his own dazzling righteousness so that we would stand before you and in front of others unashamed of our bodies, unintimidated by accusation, and unchangeably yours. Sweeten our communion with you because of what you have done for us on the cross and because of what you will do for us at the new creation party when the long arc of justice will finally bend full circle and you welcome us to the feast of grace that will last forever. Help us anticipate that on this fourth Sunday of Advent. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Would you uh, please